Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24. I'm Carlotta Rabello here in London. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll go through some of the highlights from the past week of coverage here on Monocle 24. From the very best interviews to reports and even a bit of music. Coming up on today's show. Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi meets Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. So what did we learn from this transatlantic friendship? He has a PhD from MIT, spent five years in the U.S., speaks English very well, which is unusual for an Italian politician, but he represents a country that is divided. We also mark Europe Day, talk about what happens when politicians get ill, and look at Sweden and Finland as they edge ever closer to joining NATO. Plus, we sit down with celebrated author Ali Smith for Monocle on Culture. You have to just trust your times when you're writing and you have to sort of absorb your times and see what comes through the absorbing of them when you start to reproduce them in language. All that ahead and more, including a report from Brussels on the future of our cities. That's all coming up over the next 60 minutes, right here on The Curator with me, Carlotta Rabello. This is The Curator on Monocle 24. I'm Carlotta Rabello. The beginning of the week was marked by Europe Day on May 9th, a day widely celebrated across the continent to mark unity and peace in the region. But as we found out on the Monocle Daily, many of the principles that underpinned the European Union were conceived by an Austrian aristocrat in the 1920s. His name was Richard von Konenhove Kalergi. He came up with the idea of a common currency, a single passport and a European anthem, and even proposed that Europeans should celebrate a Europe Day. At the time, his vision was seen as unrealistic and was soon forgotten in the mayhem of the Second World War. So what's the state of the Union today? Monocle's Alexei Korolyov in Vienna brings us this report. In 1914, the bitter rivalries of nationalism that had been building up in Europe throughout the 19th century exploded into war. But there was also a strong countercurrent of internationalism, of a common European culture that transcended national boundaries. And after the war, many people latched onto this idea as an antidote to nationalism. One of them was an Austrian aristocrat, Count Richard von Kudenhove Kalergi. But he didn't just talk about it, he went one further. So uh, basically he was the first, or amongst the first one, uh, to think concretely about European Union. He was an Austro-Hungarian uh, nobleman, so he grew up in the old uh, Habsburgian Austria. Dieter Schlenker is the director of the historical archives of the European Union in Florence. So he had this uh, very clear idea of a united continental Europe, which went in fact very far. Uh, He was heading towards a supranational and it was a parliamentary system. So he wanted the two chambers where in fact uh, you have a parliamentary representation uh, Europe-wide, which now we have with the European Parliament in some way, uh, and a second uh, chamber which we could even consider in the European Union something similar to the Council. And that was very revolutionary. It was also unique in that sense uh, in the interwar period. Kunhav Kalergi laid out his vision in a manifesto called Pan Europa. Somewhat prophetically, it excluded both Russia and Britain, which is saw as incompatible with the European project. For him, Europe would end on the Bosporus with parts of Turkey. It would include um, all the Western and uh, Northern and Eastern European states uh, reaching out to the borders of Russia. But it would take another world war for the notion of a united Europe to finally get going. When I started to fight for Europe, there was no European Parliament. 
no currency and nothing else like this. And we fought for this and it was successful. And I think it's only a first step what we have today. Bernd Posselt is president of the German chapter of the Pan-European Union, an organization created by Kuhnhof Kalergi. I was educated as an as a internationalist, as a pupil. I started to be active to support European integration. Since this time, I'm fighting for Europe and I'm fighting for the pan-European uh, movement. We need a strong, democratic European Uh, federation with a stronger parliament as, as it is just now. We need the European army. So we have a lot to do for the next year. So where is Europe at today? With yet another war raging on its soil, has it come any closer to the ideal of international fraternity advocated by Gunnhof Kalergi? Dieter Schlenker. As an archivist uh, and uh, as the director particularly of the historical archives of the European Union, obviously the European integration, it's not a linear process. We have seen uh, so many different uh, crises, either internally or externally. Uh, certainly there are always periods when uh, the unity is stronger, very often unfortunately under threats. Uh, but it's always difficult to achieve and uh, very quickly there is the tendency to say me first instead of solidarity principle on which uh, the European Union is, is founded. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. This was a big week for diplomacy, which saw several official trips across the globe, one of which was by Italy's Prime Minister Mario Draghi, who met US President Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. The visit was meant to showcase the country's united approach against Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But many observers said it did also reveal some of the differences. Enrico Franceschini is the London correspondent for La Repubblica, and Aliona Vilko is a former Ukrainian politician and political consultant. They joined Monaco's Marco Zeppi in the studio to unpack this visit, and he started by asking Enrico to explain what would be discussed. Mio Draghi is probably one of the best friends America could have in Italy. He has a PhD from MIT, spent five years in the U.S., Work for Goldman Sachs uh, has been very closely involved with all financial institutions in America. No, speaks English very well, which is unusual for an Italian politician. And uh, but but he represents a country that is divided and a continent also that is divided. So he came to Washington uh, with the news that uh, uh, Europe would like to see more efforts toward negotiations. The day before. The French president uh, Emmanuel Macron said uh, that uh, to humiliate uh, Russia is not the way to uh, gain grounds for uh, negotiations. And there is a big difference that comes across also with the UK, that uh, uh, Germany and Italy in particular, but all of the EU are very much dependent on Russia for their energy needs. They are trying to switch from it, but it's going to take uh, uh, maybe a year, maybe a bit longer, while the US and in, in different degree, the UK uh, do not have this problem. So this is what uh, essentially Draghi presented uh, to uh, Joe Biden, saying, first of all, though, that uh, Putin tried to divide us. He has failed so far. 
And what was the reaction from Biden? The US, the country has been openly sceptical about any chances for meaningful negotiations between Kiev and Moscow. Yes, uh, I mean, uh, Biden knows he has a friend in, in the Italian prime minister, uh, but you also know that the Italian government is a very large coalition, uh, some of which uh, uh, forces are openly saying not let's not give more arms uh, to Ukraine. Uh, Biden just said without helping Ukraine uh, to, to stop uh, the, the war to, uh, on the ground, without helping Ukraine basically to defeat Russia on the ground, we cannot uh, uh, make progress toward the negotiations. So the two positions could be uh, go in parallel or could go one against the other. Aliona, what did the meeting yesterday reveal to you? You know, it's interesting because I thought that I would never hear the narrative about let's try to understand Putin, let's not anger Putin, let's try not to escalate and reach some sort of ceasefire agreement on the ground again. After eight years of appeasement, um, after eight years of complying with the illegal war that Putin started on the territory of Ukraine since 2014, we've been hearing those urges from the Normandy format, from Germany and France. That's how we reached the stalemate in the so-called ceasefire agreement, which actually never provided any ceasefire in Donbass before. And Russians were still shelling uh, civilians and schools and hospitals and um, local residents. So it's surprising to hear that narrative come back. And um, um, rightly so. Um, Prime Minister of Italy is a good friend of Washington, D.C., and he's now even arrived to Washington, among other things, to receive his Distinguished Leadership Award from the Atlantic Council, one of the most prominent Washington-based think tanks. So we can see that friendship that's sustained there. But, um, of course, he's facing opposition at home uh, from both his coalition parties and from um, the opposition, so he needs to deliver those messages. But it's a bit weird to hear his, him basically echoing whatever Russia said just two days before the signing of the land lease agreement by the U.S. president. So um, I hoped I would never hear European leaders echoing whatever Kremlin is saying, but unfortunately that's still happening. Enrico, considering what Aliona just said, can you tell us about the domestic pressure Draghi is currently facing in Italy about what kind of support Rome should be giving to Ukraine? Well, uh, I, I totally agree with what my colleague just said. Uh, it is sad to, to hear uh, something that sounds like appeasement uh, 78 years after World War II. But the situation in Italy and in, to a larger extent in Europe, but in Italy, for example, Draghi is attacked from the right uh, parties of the coalition uh, because some of them are nationalists, populists who in the past few years have found an ally in Putin. They like uh, the, the, the strong man uh, um, ATO of Putin. And so they, they, they've had also financing from Russia and there have been several scandals about that. And so this is a problem. And from the left, from the radical left in Italy, Draghi finds opposition from people who are, you know, um, still somehow 
linked to the image of the Soviet Union. The former Italy had a very strong uh, Communist Party for many, many decades. Uh, and and, and uh, people find difficult uh, to attack Russia. And there is also a deep underneath anti-Americanism in, in our country. Uh, I mean, when I was young, I remember so many demonstrations, take Italy out of NATO was one of the slogans. Now, thanks to NATO, we are protected. We see other countries like Finland and Sweden wanted the same protection, but incredibly, uh, some people do not understand that. Enrico, could you tell us more about the reasons why it seems that Italy may have more people who are willing to understand Putin than many other European countries? Well, as I said, in, in my view, it's really um, uh, the fact that we have had, uh, uh, you know, a very strong Communist Party who was on the side of the Soviet Union. We have to remember that uh, when the Soviet Union invaded Hungary in 1956, and Czechoslovakia in 1968, the Italian Communist Party supported those invasions. The switch uh, uh, came in 1976 when the leader of the Italian Communist Party, Enrico Berlinguer, said in an interview openly for the first time, I feel better protected under NATO than outside of it. But even though he said that, uh, there are people who are still uh, not convinced. There are people who uh, blame America for, uh, you know, uh, the Vietnam War or the coup in Chile and, and, and other things like that. And uh, we have had a very strong radical left. We have had a strong uh, leftist terrorism in our country for many years. And so this is a shadow that is still there. Many intellectuals uh, uh, question uh, uh, the the fact that Europe should have uh, a position uh, different from, they, they want uh, Europe to have a position independent from America. They feel that uh, America is pushing and helping Ukraine for its own reasons to, to want to destroy Russia and, and things like that. Enrico Franceschini and Aliona Hulvico there in conversation with Monaco's Marco Zippi on The Globalist. You're listening to The Curator on Monocle 24. I'm Carlotta Rebello here in London. The European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has called Russia's invasion of Ukraine the most direct threat to world order. As both Finland and Sweden weigh up joining NATO, Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson has visited both countries, pledging to bolster military ties in the face of Russian aggression. Petri Burtsov is Monaco's correspondent in Helsinki and Charlie Duxbury is Politico's correspondent in Stockholm. They joined Georgina Godwin to discuss this military cooperation. Here's Charlie. They were a bit light on kind of specific details of what the UK might do if Sweden were to suffer an attack or a disaster, as they phrased it, um, or or vice versa. But, I mean, I think Johnson wanted to create the impression that, that all options would be on the table and it would depend on what Sweden asked for. Um, and, and I guess the same the same would go for his commitment to, to Finland. Obviously, this comes in a context of uh, the, the ongoing debate in Sweden and Finland about potentially joining NATO and... Um, a potential few months ahead if they were to decide to join to apply to join NATO where a kind of unclear security situation would be would be in place before um, the kind of mutual defense clause of the NATO membership would kick in. Mm. And Petri, do we have any detail on what was agreed with Finland? 
Well, the, <clears throat> the actual declaration is very similar um, to, to that that the UK made with, uh, with Sweden. But then in the press conference uh, last night, which Boris Johnson held with the Finnish president, uh, Sauli Niinistö, uh, local journalist actually asked Johnson, what does this mean in practice? And, and he replied by saying, well, this means military aid. If Finland is attacked, UK will assist it militarily. So he made it very, very clear because it, it's a very sensitive issue in Finland, especially this uh, waiting period um, that Charles mentioned uh, before Finland is officially a member of NATO. You know, it can take it can take up to several months and, and Russia has already uh, threatened Finland and Sweden in, in, in various ways. So it's a very sensitive issue in, in Finland and, and the local journalist wanted to get the more sort of um, in detail information from Johnson. Does military aid mean, you know, supplying military hardware or does it mean boots on the ground? Uh, he he was also asked that, and 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 he said that it, it's up to the uh, that country which um, um, you know asks for that aid to decide what kind of aid they want. But he said that nothing is off the table. So you know it could also mean boots on the ground if, if that is needed. Mm. Uh, Charlie, the, the Swedish leader, Magdalena Andersson, has said that Sweden is safer with this pact in place. Is that how the Swedish people feel? Yeah, I think so. That seemed to be the response to yesterday's news conference with the two leaders. Um, everybody's kind of yeah concerned about what a potential application to to NATO would, would mean for Sweden. Obviously, we're not as close to to Russia as, as Finland is here. But there are concerns among among the population here about how safe they would be during any transition period to NATO. So I think, yeah, the, Johnson did it did enough to kind of make people feel slightly safer. Mm. I mean, Petri, talking about that, that period between applying to join and actually then being covered by NATO protection, uh, we know, of course, that Finland and Russia share a huge border. Are Finns in favour of joining NATO, given the threat from Russia? Russia's actually said they are watching very closely anything that can affect NATO configuration near our border? Uh, yes, that's a very good question. Finns are um, a large majority of Finns. I think it's 76 or 78 uh, percent are in favor of joining joining NATO. And this is a this is a dramatic turnaround. I mean, for for decades, that number has been sort of between 10 and 25 sort of up maximum 30 percent of Finns have traditionally favored favored joining NATO. So majority has been against it. But ever since uh, Russia's uh, war in, in Ukraine, we've just seen this very dramatic turnaround. And, you know, it's 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 uh, there is really there's no not even a debate about it. Even even you know the the uh, sort of uh, further left, the far left parties have that have been the most vocal against NATO. Even they are now um, you know uh, for for NATO. So so it's it's such a wide social and political consensus. Mm, but it hasn't actually been announced properly that this is going to happen. When will we know the definite position regarding a bid for NATO membership? Well, actually, in about 50 minutes time. So so both the Finnish president, Sauli Niinistö, and Prime Minister Sanna Marin uh, will unveil their um, view on NATO or, on, and Finland's membership uh, at 10 a.m. Helsinki time. So, yeah, in 53 minutes. Um, after that, um, it will go to the Finnish parliament. We already know that every single party in, in, in parliament is is for Finland joining. So, so you know, um, all everything points to that the actual application will be lodged by the, by the end of the week. Mm. Uh, Charlie, watching all this from Sweden, I wonder if there's any sense of Boris Johnson's flurry of international activity and 
hawkish behaviour being used to distract from his domestic troubles. Are, are the Swedish people cynical about this in any way? I mean, it was the, that issue was raised at the, the news conference yesterday uh, and Johnson was keen to obviously bat away um, questions about his domestic situation as, a, as kind of secondary to the, the, the security picture in Europe. I think here... Um, People are aware of what's going on in UK news and they're aware that the kind of, you know, Johnson is facing pressure at home. But, you know, at least for the for the short term, the focus is on um, the war in Ukraine, what it means for the Swedish security picture and, and kind of the focus is there. And um, the next few days obviously going to be key for, for this NATO debate. So I, I think um, people here were, were kind of keen to to put the the. British domestic politics to, or English domestic politics to, to one side. Mm. Patrick, I wonder how significant British support, British military support for Finland is. Does Finland need Britain? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very, very big question. I mean, uh, maybe we can start with a little bit of a background. So Finland has... Um, uh, for all of its history, essentially being outside of military alliances, um, and it still is before it joins NATO. So it, that has meant that Finland has very a very large land army. Um, I believe one of the largest artilleries in in Europe. So so you know it has always had to rely on defending um, itself. Um, and, and not, you know, foreign foreign aid. So that's also how the country's um, defense has also always been built up and also bearing in mind the two wars against the Soviet Union um, and living next to them, sharing this 1,300 kilometer land border with them. So, you know, um, Finland is capable of defending itself, uh, but, you know, in view of a possible larger conflict between the democratic quest and, and Russia, um, there is a belief that Finland needs to be part of a larger alliance. Mm. Uh, uh, Charlie Johnson said that this is not a short-term stopgap, but a long-term commitment to bolster military ties and fortify Europe's defences for generations to come. And I wonder how this, this plays into the whole post-Brexit landscape. Is this Britain positioning itself to take a military lead, having left Europe? Yeah, there's certainly been reaction here in, in, in local media and um, editorial writers here have been keen to try and see this as a way for for the UK to kind of re-engage, certainly with, with, with Nordic countries, which, I mean, here people would be keen to see because when the UK left the EU, it felt like for, for countries like Sweden and Denmark and Finland that they were losing a kind of an ally in various key questions for them within Europe. So this kind of re-engagement on, on the security side would be seen as a, or is being seen as a positive step in terms of that re-engagement. And I, and I guess um, people here would be keen to kind of try and build on that. Charlie Duxbury and Petri Burtsov there speaking to Georgina Godwin. You're listening to The Curator. Now, one thing that politicians have in common with athletes is that they will often push themselves long past the point at which most of us would decide it was all too much like hard work. But politicians are not athletes. Many are in fact quite the opposite, middle-aged or elderly and plagued by human frailty. So what happens when politicians get ill? Andrew Muller was joined in the studio by the historian, author and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman for the Foreign Desk. He began by asking Alex if this is something historians think a lot about, how the illness of a particular individual can end up shaping global history. 
It's a complicated thing to approach because historians do think about it because obviously it's highly relevant. We know that physical and mental health conditions can and do affect behaviour. You can see that around you all the time. But it's often quite difficult as a historian to diagnose someone. Generally mm. speaking, we're not doctors and it's quite unusual, even with kind of long gone figures, to have access to all their medical records. Of course, also when you go back in the past, people didn't necessarily describe their conditions in the same way we would now. So when you're looking at a figure a long time ago, such as the long debated madness of King George III, there are, of course, theories that that might have been something like porphyria, but there's really no proof you're trying to make sense of symptoms written down in a very different time and different way than we would now. But with more modern leaders, we may not be entirely sure at the time, but we do get a very good idea, usually quite quickly after they've left office, of what ailed them. And at this point, we will talk about a couple of specific ones. The Suez Crisis, which you have written about extensively and which we have discussed on the radio as we attempted to reenact it for the Foreign Desk. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during that calamity was Sir Anthony Eden, who we later learned was not a well man at all. So I guess, first of all, if we look Look at what do we know about what was wrong with him? It is a bit vague, but we certainly know that he'd had quite serious physical and mental health issues for many, many years. He'd never been a particularly well man. And actually, Winston Churchill, of course, who'd been Prime Minister while Eden was Foreign Secretary for a long time, had been really quite cruel about this and had sort of taken the mickey out of him for being so unwell. It quite often resulted in things like him sort of passing out at parties and things like this. And it was said that there was madness in his family that there was kind of a hereditary problem. When it came to 1956 and the kind of crucial point of the Suez crisis, we know he was quite ill. I mean, three weeks before, so 5th of October 1956, he actually collapsed. He was visiting his wife in hospital. She was in for a dental operation and he physically collapsed, had a fever of 106 degrees and had to be admitted to hospital. And we know that at the time he was taking drugs such as benzodrine, amphetamines, which, of course, were supposed to sort of pick him up. We don't know in what quantities. So certainly we can say at that time he was not a well man and a lot of the people around him did think that that was a factor in his poor decision making. But on the other hand, the whole cabinet approved what he was doing and they weren't all taking benzodrine. <laughs> Although if it turned out that they had been, that might have explained a great deal uh, well, in, in, yes. in, in retrospect. <laughs> you do there mention the mockery of his various conditions by Winston Churchill, who was in many respects a fine one to talk, especially pertaining to his victory lap as Prime Minister between 1951 and 55. His own biographer, Roy Jenkins, described him as gloriously unfit for office during that period. He did suffer at least one stroke, I think, of that we know of while in Downing Street. Do we know if that actually affected his decision-making? It's really hard to know if it affected his decision-making. And again, here what you're relying on really is sort of people around them talking and quite a lot of hearsay. But Churchill had been ill for a long time. I mean, he had his first heart attack in December 1941 when he was in Washington. So that was really just after Pearl Harbour. The reason we know about this and we know about it in some detail is because his doctor, Lord Moran, wrote a very detailed memoir about all of Churchill's health conditions, which actually most people regarded as really quite unethical that Lord Moran wrote this. I think it probably was very unethical, although highly useful for historians. And Moran said that Churchill's really serious decline dated from 1944. So again, we are talking about before the end of World War II. And you can see, for instance, Polish ambassador at that time recording that he thought Churchill was kind of out of it when they were speaking. But yes, he had certainly had a stroke in 1953, possibly more than one at various points. 
But I think probably a lot of people are more fascinated by the wartime illness because, you know, whether you think he sort of bravely struggled through it or whether you think it affected him, that's quite interesting either way. Is there a consensus among historians on Churchill during the war? Because he did write later quite candidly about the depression that he suffered, the black dog, as he put it. Do we know if it did actually affect his decision making? We don't know really, and there's a lot of argument about this. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that by describing the black dog, he was describing some form of depressive condition. However, there are people who very strongly argue that he wasn't, that he was just a bit sad, (laughs) and, you know, that they feel very strongly that Churchill was fine. I'm not quite sure what the agenda is behind that, unless you think depression is some form of moral failing, which of course it isn't. It is an illness. But there's a lot of argument about whether any of this really affected his decision-making. Also his drinking, which was exceptionally heavy. I was about to move on to that because the descriptions of Churchill's drinking, you would have to wonder if that didn't affect his decision-making, then what would? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's fascinating that kind of everybody around him said that he was quite unaffected by drinking these gigantic quantities. And in fact, I remember there is one quite good document recording a time that he really did suffer and had a terrible hangover, which is when he went drinking with Stalin, who apparently outpaced (laughs) even him. So apparently you could get Churchill under the table if you were Stalin, but almost nobody else managed it. A highlight there from the Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're listening to The Curator, our weekly highlights program here on Monocle 24. I'm Carlotta Rebello. I was in Brussels earlier this week reporting from the Urban Land Institute's Europe Conference and Young Leaders Forum. And when you gather a group of experts on the built environment together with real estate developers, it becomes almost inevitable to look back and assess the past two years and how the pandemic affected cities. François Roche is the chief executive officer of Allianz Real Estate. I wanted to hear his thoughts on the future of our cities and why thriving metropolises are here to stay. I don't believe that big cities are dead. One out of personal experience, I started real estate in 93 in the US and uh, I got to start real estate in New York. And New York is sort of a concentration of real estate with all the skyscrapers, the density. And I learned in New York in six months, which uh, would have taken me, you know, two years in a normal European city. So I believe specifically for young people, big cities is where you learn. Big cities is where you develop your talent. And therefore, I think big cities play an important role as well. And then the second one is more of a real estate observation. Basically, urbanization is still ongoing. You know, as we speak, you know, cities like Stockholm or cities like Tokyo have a growing population. Why is that? The population of the countries might not be growing, but people move from medium cities to big cities. That trend is still continuing. And I worked a lot in China, and Chinese have understood that urbanization is the future of how a country needs to be structured. So I'm not a believer that coming out of COVID, you know, people all move to small cities, especially early in their careers. That doesn't mean that everything is rosy. We also have to ensure as participants in that market to provide adequate housing. And some countries are doing it better than others because housing, of course, has to come with it. But uh, yes, I'm a believer of 24 by 7 cities. 
Well, there's always been a change with what the city represents and how cities develop. Obviously, because we as humans change, technology comes into play, all of these things. So is it more a case of cities having to adapt to who we are as a society post-COVID? Or do you feel like there's always going to be room for, you know, the busy life of a 24-7 city? For sure, cities have to adapt. They always have been adapting in the way they accommodate people. For example, today, indeed, being able to have affordable residential is important. And at Allianz, we are going back into residential while many institutional investors had gone out of that sector. We see the need to come back into that sector. I think we have to make sure that transportation into the city is adequate. And I've seen already the change in Paris. When I came back from Japan, I lived in Japan for six years. When I came back to Paris, I never bought a car again. That was in 2015. I never regretted it. So I changed the way I move myself in Paris, alternating between uh, the metro, the bike, and the taxi or that type of cars. So I think uh, cities uh, do adapt. I think what got lost a little bit over time is a little bit the focus on the quality of the urban planning. I always refer to Haussmann. Haussmann was, from my point of view, a genius because he developed the essence of a dense city. Haussmann in quarter is more dense than a tower. Nevertheless, you know, people like it. They like to live in there. And city planners sometimes very often see density as the enemy. And I think density is your friend. And I think cities will be more attractive if they understand how to use density to their advantage. For example, in Japan, the notion of vertical campuses already exists, eh, where you alternate different usages within uh, high-rise. Okay? So I think both high-rises and density will help the cities, I think, in their way forward. Now, one of the things you also mentioned when talking about your own experience and living in all these different big metropolises was how you see cities as a catalyst for young people that, for example, in the early stages of your career, you mentioned how you wouldn't have been able to uh, maybe develop your skill set as quickly if you weren't living in New York at the time, if you were in another town. What is the potential then that big cities can have for younger generations, the ones that we need to find the affordable homes to live in, to create those opportunities, to allow them to experience these opportunities that big cities can deliver, not only on a personal level, but on a professional level too. Of course, I think for this to happen, two things have to happen. I mentioned it before, you need to be able to provide uh, sufficient housing, okay? The housing doesn't have to be big. I've seen it in Japan, the housing is very small, but that's okay because, you know, young people do spend a lot of time outside in the office, but also socializing, okay? So in my view, the issue of commuting is a little bit less relevant for young people if we can find housing, you know, within the area. But that also means that in office space, the more older people or senior people or managers also have to be there because there's no point to have office buildings full of young people and then nobody they can interact with which has more experience. So I think it's an illusion to think that people with responsibilities can just get away but not showing up in the office and working from their country homes. They have a responsibility to be in the office as well. Of course I think what has changed is that being in the office every day, that flexibility which senior executives always had by the way, you know, not to be in the office every day and work from where they want it, that flexibility now is being given to everybody in my view and so we'll have to find the right compromise on how to get uh, people into the office. I learned from a study from McKinsey to get people to come back to the office. It's not sufficient to say, come on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Friday. You have to create moments that matters. And I think managers have to create these moments that matters so that they bring the right resources together in the office when it counts. I'm curious to hear your take and the take of Allianz Real Estate on what do you see then as being the next big challenge for our urban environments? What are some of the things
things you're already working on or trends that you are foreseeing that, okay, this is going to be the next big hurdle for us. Is it back to affordability or is it something else in the horizon? First of all, you know, at Allianz Real Estate, we believe in central offices which uh, serve as the place where the culture of a company is being built. And uh, the first thing we did when COVID came and everybody was working from home, we did a concentric circle of five kilometers around city centers to see how many of our buildings were within that five kilometer range because we felt that those buildings will remain in demand while those which are far away in suburban space will be less in demand. So having well-located offices on central transportation nodes, it also also means that we have to be more open to mixed-use projects, which basically mixing up office with residential, with, of course, a bit of retail, I think, especially amenity retail, which has tended to disappear in cities. And then finally, everybody speaks about last mile. You know, the last mile also has to be integrated. Again, coming back to my Asia experience, because I feel that in Asia, they don't have the luxury of time, so they do things fast. And what I learned from China or from Japan is you had all these little shops in the city which served sort of as last mile for package delivery in Japan and that was a very efficient way to use the city not just as an area of consumption but also maybe of production. Well, you mentioned that there about Japan so maybe I'll throw a several parts question to you which is which cities do you think does the residential well and which city do you think does the retail experience well? I'm actually quite impressed by London. I just came back from London. It's a city I like. We have an office there as well, even though the headquarters is in Munich. I myself, I live in Paris, but I like the way in London they have reused the arches under the train to create interesting type of retail, which basically does cater to the immediate needs of the community, but also quite trendy stores. Okay, how to use the old and use it again. I think uh, that's probably more the way to go than building the next shopping mall again. I think in terms of a residential, I think the Nordics, uh, they have a good understanding because I think when it comes to residential, I think the design is important. And those cities which have just a good sense of what is good design for people to live in, uh, what makes interesting uh, living quarters, and uh, there's a lot we can learn from the Nordic countries in that regard. And as a matter of fact, because I also know you have an office in Zurich, uh, the way Zurich has done it also quite successfully versus maybe London or Paris where it's not as advanced yet. That was François Troche, the CEO of Allianz Real Estate, speaking to me earlier this week for The Urbanist from Brussels. This is a curator. Let's turn to the printed page now and our show, The Stack. This week, Fernando Augusto Pacheco spoke with Fatima Farhim Mirza, the Californian writer now based here in London. Fatima took part in Valentino, The Narratives Too, where Maison Valentino delves into the literary world for a words-only advertising campaign. Creative director Pierpaolo Piccioli invited 17 authors to take part. And of course, Fatima was one of them. Let's hear a highlight from their conversation. I was a part of the first one last year, which was really exciting, a little bit different than the one this year. Last year, they asked us to include the word Valentino in the text, which was really fun, kind of constraint to figure out how the text can arrive. And I think that one was inspired by the goldfinch by Donna Tartt because there's this one moment where a character comes out wearing Valentino and so I think that was the original inspiration for that campaign and so then this year they took away that kind of constraint so writers could write anything of any length as long as it was around love 
which is a beautiful theme and kind of universal. So tell us, what do you think about this type of, you know, collaborations between a fashion brand and a writer? Because it's, it's, it's quite a new thing. I think it's quite interesting uh, to advertise via text from mm-hmm. a brand that is very known for its imagery as well. Yeah, I, I loved it. I loved the opportunity to step in as a writer and collaborate with Valentino. I feel like at the end of the day, whether it's fashion or whether it's writing, both are like artistic pursuits that are doing very similar things, you know? What I mean by that is both are, you know, the person's attempt to tell a story, to kind of convey their identity, their personality, and like it always also comes down to personal style, like whether it's a writer's personal style or a brand's brand's look that you can just kind of see it and know, oh, that's Valentino or whatever. It's kind of this expression of the self and like creation of the self and of story. And so I thought that was kind of fun to to have that opportunity to collaborate and merge and see what can come about. Before we talk about your text in, in particular, I mean, other 16 writers besides you as well have been invited to do this. Were you, did you know the work of the other writers? Were you a fan, perhaps, of some of yeah, them? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was one of the most exciting parts when you realize whose company you're in. Last year, I, I had just finished reading Luster by Raven Leilani. Um, she was invited to be in it. Ocean Vuong, who I also love. So many writers. And then this year, you know, Andrew Sean Greer or even seeing... Like, I'm, my mind is blanking all of a sudden, but it was, it, it's always like an exciting thing to see writers that you really like love and respect, Michael Cunningham, and, you know, and feeling like, oh, wow, we're all like in this, in this project together and reading them like one after another is so amazing to see how do these writers take on that topic of love. And different styles as well, right? I mean, and talking about style, uh, you know, I actually have, uh, you know, your collaboration in front of me and there's one in front of you. Would you mind actually reading it for us? Of course. So this is the first few sentences of a piece that's about four paragraphs long, but the piece that is chosen is begins with, Once I met a man I could love, and in his mouth my name dissolved, pronounced how my mother whispered it when I was a girl feverish and falling into fitful sleep. To hear it was like tuning through radio static until suddenly song. Oh, that's beautiful. That, that's you. really beautiful. Tell us a bit more about this uh, text in particular. So the text that I wrote, the whole text can be found on, on Valentino's website, but the, the text that I wrote, it's about a character who's afraid to fall in love. And like the first few, the first half of it, she spends thinking like, I'm nobody's girl, you know, and the kind of the kind of like defense that you build when you're like afraid to be vulnerable, and afraid to put yourself out there. And as the text continues on, it's about her kind of realizing, you know, because in this moment, like she meets somebody that she thinks she could love, but then like flinches, moves away from it. And it's about her trying to figure out like why she did that. And that takes the journey of the text takes her to like moments from her childhood and how her mother had loved her or hadn't loved her. And um, once she kind of figures that out in her mind, she's able to claim the feeling of actually that was love and that was desire and goes to pursue it. It is kind of scary to fall in love, to be honest. Actually. Yeah. So it is It's quite relatable in it's, a way. It's one of the most like frightening things and like the most amazing thing that can happen to you. You know, that's why all the stories are about love. All of the I feel like love is such a great topic to assign for writers, because in my mind, it's like the engine of all things. You know, the minute the character falls in love, suddenly we're all like 
ready, you know, ready to keep watching, keep listening. Do you think, uh, you know, let's say a Valentino customer would relate to those texts? Because I, I, I had a look, apparently, there's been some kind of partnership with a few bookstores around the world where yes. some of the texts have been, which looks quite nice. And I think, again, a bookstore is the perfect place yeah. to have something like this. Yeah, visually, it's so stunning to mm -hmm. see all the posters. I love it. And last year, they had made similar kind of really visually stunning posters around New York City and stuff. But I think absolutely anyone could relate to this topic, right? That's the that's the amazing thing about writing that like continue or storytelling in general that continues to always stun me is how it can be such a different world, such a different character experience, you know, but when they are speaking from the heart, it's like all the same. It's like one universal language and so you can you immediately relate to it. That's fantastic. Uh, and, and Fatma, tell us uh, a, a bit more about you as a writer. I know you wrote A Place for Us, which has been, you know, an incredible book. I mean, it's been on the best New York Times bestseller list as well. Do you have any new projects coming up or anything that you can review if you can't? No yeah. problem. So I won't fully reveal the new novel. It's still at that stage where, do you know when it's like clay, where you're mm. still molding it so you don't know exactly how it's going to end up forming um clay is just the first thing that came to my mind because i actually took a clay class this weekend and it was really fun okay. um but it's kind of at that moldable stage but yes i wrote a novel a few years ago since then it's been really fun to work on some essays and i've just started working on adapting my novel to the screen so i'm going to try screenwriting and figure that out which will be really exciting and i am working on another novel but i won't say too much about it yet But I th it's going to be very different. It's going to be very different from A Place for Us, which is such a kind of like family novel. This one is much more about, it feels more fresh and fun and edgy. And actually, you know, so this year working on the Valentino piece and last year working on the Valentino piece, I had this kind of constraint of like, you know, um, one page or a few paragraphs to tell the story. And I wanted to write it like a mini novel. And so every single sentence had to have so much like careful care, you know, like so much weight and meaning because you have so few sentences to work with. And I, I love doing it. It really changed the way that I wrote writing those two pieces and it kind of unlocked a new voice a voice that was a little bit more I don't know like edgier than what I had previously written through which was so fun for me and so I think you know that's definitely influenced the way that I'm going to continue to keep writing it's interesting you mentioned mini novel because I think that's why works like this uh Valentino the narratives are so impactful because They are short, but sometimes I think for a writer, it's quite hard actually to do something mm. short. I feel the same as a journalist when I have to write something just 200 words or something. Yeah. It's, it's actually very hard to condense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for a writer, perhaps even harder because you're talking about feelings as well. Yeah, absolutely. I always think of how much poets have to do mm. with so little and how they like say as much as a novel, but they have to just condense it. An interview there from The Stack, which you can, of course, listen back by heading over to monocle.com. You're with the curator, our weekly highlights program here on Monocle 24. I'm Carlotta Rabello. Ali Smith is one of the UK's most celebrated writers and a four-time Booker Prize nominee. Her latest work, Companion Piece, uses Smith's typically playful language to bring together the specific hardships of the COVID-19 pandemic and mythic history. She joined Robert Bound in the studio, who began by asking her if this book is a reaction to the ungenerous times in which we're living. 
the problem right now is that our politics has become so, and it's everywhere around us as well, because now, I mean, you just asked me to switch my phone off. We've got our phones in our pockets. Mm. The, the news is on every screen in everybody's pockets or, you know, and the information arrives in everybody's pockets very fast. And we're living a very close to the surface life, to the things which are happening around us nationally and internationally in a way that I don't think we ever quite lived before we had this new screen version of ourselves in the world. And something about that has made it possible Exactly as it made possible in the 1930s when Goebbels knew to string up loudspeakers everywhere so that you would hear exactly what Goebbels wanted you to hear along with the jolly music that they were playing outside all the taverns and in all the streets. A certain take on culture. Politics at home and abroad has been working divisively because everybody has always known since the beginning of time that divide means rule and that they're connected. And so in that time, that's the point at which we have to start paying real attention to all sorts of things around us to see what they give, whether they are giving, what it is they're giving us, what it is they're taking from us. And that division, I think, is where those seasonal books you know, you, when you get a crack in a pavement and something grows out through it, yeah, that thing. I yeah. think that's what happened with those books. Didn't expect it. Started writing those books as a whim. In, said to my, my publisher, now that I know we can publish books very fast, which I did because of a book I'd handed in very late and they produced very fast, very beautifully. Yeah, I'll just write really fast and you publish really fast and we'll see what happens. And that was end of 2014 and I started writing autumn, end of 2015. And then the particular divisive nature of 2016 set in quite fast you re- recreated so much of that language because mm. it was it it's was, about language yeah and mm. that that was the the flower or the weed to spot the difference i suppose growing up through that crack in the pavement well, you... weeds are weeds are great too though you know oh no exactly that's what i'm saying let's <laughs> yeah, not let's yeah. not be let's be non-denominational when it comes <laughs> no, but they are they're great they're... <laughs> but just weeds, wildflowers weeds are anything anything yeah. that grows anything that's natural anything that comes through whatever it is that someone has laid across the surface of the planet which continues to produce life force everywhere it is. We you know, be thankful for it. Which we are, we will be, and we'll need to be thankful for, if you know, if, unless we totally fuck it up, which, you know, we're in the, the midst of doing at the moment. But um, that is, I think, that whatever that crack was in things is where those books came from. You yeah, know? bubbling up. You have to just trust to your times when you're writing and, and you, have to, you have to sort of absorb your times and see what comes through the absorbing of them when you start to reproduce them in language. It feels like a funny thing to, to ask you, but do you know where where they start and finish? I felt, this, particularly with companion piece, that I was eavesdropping. I was looking over your shoulder as you sat in your study. I was watching you, you for there, three hours. I was <laughs> I watching know, you for know, three hours I as know, you wrote this I thing. know you weren't there, otherwise I'd have said, look, let's go for a cup of coffee. This is Brush me. your teeth. This, this book's driving me mad. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I'll go, I'll go and put the kettle on, because you know, yeah. I'm going to put this in the bin any minute. So, you know, let's, let's, you know. So, um, but you, commentary, something about... Why does it feel like that? What I don't is know, it? there's something about it. I feel like why do you feel like it was me that you were watching do this? I'm, I'm not saying you're the, any of the characters, or, but I feel yeah, like yeah. you're the... Maybe you're not even the architect. I feel like you're channeling something. Yeah, you're putting your... Not the architect, yeah. You're it's, putting your, does actually your just... hook and worm into the stream that's flowing underneath and you're picking things out. I, I love like that. Thank you. I, you know I, I mean? do really love that notion of it, that you, you take what is given. And also, when I closed the covers on Companion Piece, maybe it was a w- two weeks later that the government announced that it was sending migrants to... Rwanda. I was like, 
what would, how would that be treated in this book, even if it was a line of dialogue or a suggestion or a thing? Again, it's chucking the hook in the water and seeing what comes out. I feel that these books have become very addictive for, for fans of your work and people that have come to it because of the, the currency, I suppose, of the, some of the subject matter here. And I kind of thought, God, I wish, I wish this had not happened at all or happened sooner so that it could be part of this one. Because it, it inevitably felt like it might be. You know, it's richer in this one as well. This, yeah. this book begins in anger. The companion piece begins in a, a kind of the slough of despond of anger of one person looking at where we are right now and how we've got there, what it is that is pressed upon us as a society and questions of generosity and closeness that mm-hmm. you started talking about in this. And there is a, a line in here which sums up exactly one of the reasons why this person is very angry and why many of us might be angry about how people who have got to this country against all the odds... God knows how they managed it, because that's pretty heroic to have got here anyway, having had all their safe routes taken away from them. Full stop. Still got here um, and ended up being housed in what had used to be a prison. This is a real thing that really did happen. They were living in a prison which had then, because it had stopped being used as a prison, presumably because it was too draconian as a prison, had been a prison theme camp, you know, kind of theme park. So you would go and look at what it used to be like to be in a prison. And now these, these folk who had arrived across the world... God knows what they'd come through to get here. We were put in the cells, which were still cells. Odysseus was a hero, and anyone else that crosses the seas in absolute claps in irons. So we know that. How do we how do we pick who wins and who loses? We know what heroic is as human beings. We do know, and at some point, we challenge any state or society or structure which says that that is not heroic. And the human in us will always come to the surface. Mm. Is what I think. It's the flower that's crunching its, its way up. It's the life force in us that, that recognises other life force openly rather than closedly. And that is the big question we, we face on every level at the moment, you know, all across the world. How do we open? Especially, you know, we've all been, this book is very much about isolation and the isolation that we were all forced to be in yeah, yeah. for those years of lockdown. And when we have been locked down, how do we unlock again? Finally today, we end with the biggest news of the week, the Eurovision Song Contest. We've been following the competition attentively here at Midori House and we won't spoil yesterday's final for you. So instead, let me hand you over to Fernando, who has an explainer on this year's competition. It's Eurovision Week. And so what, you may ask? Well... I say this. And before that wolf eats my grandma, give that wolf a banana, give that wolf. And before that wolf. Or this. Instead of meat, I eat veggies and. It's that time of the year where European countries compete to each other on who has the best song, best outfits, best dance routine. It's a spectacle, and a very successful one in terms of ratings. It is one of those rare events where the audience keeps on growing year by year. Last year the event reported 183 million viewers. So much so that this year it inspired a transatlantic version, the American Song Contest, And next year, the Canadian Song Contest. But let's focus on Europe, shall we? The big story of the year is Ukraine, and it's almost inevitable win. The song is very good, a mix of Ukrainian folk with hip-hop beats. It would certainly do well in any other year. But with everything that's happening in Ukraine, the bookies are saying it's a strong favorite. 
Alusha Castro's Estefania is great indeed. But what about the other main competitors? Italy continue with its trick of excellent crafted tunes, with the return of Mahmoud, who charmed us all with Saudi back in 2019. This time he's got a ballad in store with singer Blanco in Brividi. Cornelia Jacobs representing Sweden is an emotional punch. With the simple staging and crystalline voice, it is surely one of the favorites too. But Eurovision is not Eurovision of a proper dance banger. And I think Spain has a good one in Chanel's slow-mo. I mean, Spain is not necessarily an Eurovision powerhouse. So be very happy to see it winning the trophy after years of lackluster entries. Even the UK has a chance this year. I know Brits love saying that Europe doesn't like them, blah, blah, blah. I immensely disagree. Just bring in a fun act and a sing-along song, which they did this year, with Sam Ryder's Spaceman. I can't wait for the big final in Turin. Meanwhile, stay tuned to Monaco 24 and listen to my interviews with some of the artists, deep analysis and more. From Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's edition of The Curator. This show was produced and presented by myself, Carlotta Rabello, and our sound engineer was David Stevens. Join us again next week to hear highlights from the coverage here on Monaco 24. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.